This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. My name is uh, Bill Domnarski, and doing a podcast today for the New Books Network. Today is uh, October 25th, 2022, and we're doing a podcast on a whale of a book. Of course, I had to make that joke. We're talking about Moby Dick, and we're lucky to have with us today the editor of a brand new edition of Moby Dick, published by the Oxford University Press, and that is Hester Blum. Hester, tell us uh, a little bit about yourself, where you went to school, where you teach, and then I'm gonna pepper you with all kinds of questions about how you got this job writing this wonderful introduction to this even more wonderful book. So tell us about yourself. Thank you, I I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you about this. I was born and raised in North New Jersey. Uh, something has always been a point of pride for me, but I grew up spending my summers traveling the US in a motorhome with my parents. So I feel like my American literary sensibilities were developed on those summer road trips. But um, I stayed in New Jersey for my schooling. I went to Princeton University for my undergraduate degree and then went to graduate school at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia and from there had a, an early job at the University of Tennessee briefly. And then I have now spent, this is my 20th year as an English professor at Penn State University. 20 years, wow. Well, I should mention that I'm from Connecticut. So of course we're natural enemies, you being from New Jersey, <laughs> uh, but I won't hold that against you. Listen, all it's right. my state area solidarity all around. <laughs> all right, so as I mentioned, we have this uh, new edition of Moby Dick published by Oxford as part of their series called the Oxford World's Classics. Now, I mentioned that because there's another one in the same series. Moby Dick, this one without the hyphen. In fact, maybe we should talk about the hyphen. I know that Mary Norris of The New Yorker has a wonderful little section in one of her books about the hyphen in Moby Dick. But there's also an edition from, I believe it's 1992, edited by Tony Tanner. Do you have any information as to how it is that Oxford decided, well, it's time for another edition of Moby Dick? 
I don't know what their internal thought process was uh, from the start, but I do know that at a certain point I received an email from the editor of that series asking me to take a look at the introductions to Moby Dick in the Oxford World Classics and to another volume of Melville's that they published and to let them know what I thought about those introductions if they were still working for today's readers and especially today's undergraduate students who's a major part of their market for these volumes and i thought that the introduction to the other Melville volume was still really solid and working really well and um, tony tanner's introduction it was great at the time he's a, a really prominent scholar and a wonderful writer but some of it hadn't aged as well for contemporary readers um, and so I didn't have an inkling at the time that they were asking me this question with a follow up in mind, but when I suggested that the edition of Moby Dick might need to be freshened for today's readers, the follow up question was, would you be interested in doing this? And I was overjoyed to accept. It's always well, been a dream. Did you write up an assessment for them, a little report? I did, I did, um, and I um, part of the, the thing I, I most remember about um, um, Tony Tanner's introduction again, which is, is largely great, was that it at one point referred to Ishmael and Queequeg's relationship um, as being problematically homosexual. Um, and that's not an expression that I think um, readers of today would enforce <clears throat> or be comfortable with. And I certainly don't think it's not what the novel is suggesting about their relationship. I think it's not true to the spirit of the novel. So that was one aspect of my um, response that seemed to be something that um, might turn off uh, contemporary readers. Um, and also, you know, tastes of readers change over time, what readers find in texts and what they bring to them also change. And so um, it makes sense that each generation should have its own version of Moby Dick. Well, it's interesting you mentioned um, um the uh, homoerotic uh, aspect, because he actually does have a, a pretty long paragraph or two about the wonderful scene that you talked about as well in your introduction about squeezing the globules of uh, of oil. Um, anything else about his introduction that seemed to you to be dated? Uh, the I'm, I'm trying to remember the details now. It's it's been it's been a couple of years since this process was uh, inaugurated. Um, I I do think that. Um, reader interests in the religious questions about Moby Dick, which have gone back for many, many decades and generations, um, as well as thinking through some of the, the kind of broader, big capital T truth questions um, are familiar enough to readers that it seemed like a fresh perspective might be warranted to pay attention to some of the ways in which the novel remains alive to contemporary concerns while still being elastic enough to sustain those kinds of classic questions. Now, when you're making your implicit argument that there should be a new edition, did you also, um, this is something I probably would have done. I would have gone after, not gone after, that's not the right phrase. <laughs> I would have also talked about the Penguin edition. There's a second Penguin edition that came out about the same time as Tony Tanner's. I think actually it was just a few years before. Um, and it's uh, edited by or introduced by Andrew DeBlanco. 
And I read that introduction and I thought it had some of the same failings that you just described or recited about Tony Tanner's introduction. Did you have a chance to talk about that other major player in the publishing world when it comes to Moby Dick? It wasn't part of my specific proposal, but I certainly have taught that edition in the past. Um, and um, Andrew Delbanco is a, a author of a biography of Melville, which um, is is a very good biography, um, and is you know a, a kind of lion in American literary scholarship. Um, but what I remember most about that introduction, and I remember my students having a strong response to it, is that it opens with a scene that Delbanco sets in a wood paneled elite academic yes. space um, in which there's a strong division between British literature and American literature. And the implicit point in that scene is that it would be shocking to find American literature as worthy as British literature. Um, and I was teaching this in a, a classroom um, made of cinder blocks on my, the very beautiful Penn State campus, which um, nevertheless does not have a lot of wood paneled classrooms for students. That's not how most public universities and really most universities, the vast majority of universities function. So my students would not have been able to relate to the idea of that kind of academic elitism in quite those terms as prominent a university as Penn State is in many ways. And so what I remember from that um, introduction is that it kind of repeats a sense of elite greatness that Moby Dick, again, unquestionably uh, has has been um, understood to be embodying, but the experience of the novel, again, I, I, I is runs counter to that kind of wood paneled elitism. And so that was not something that my students found um, to be consonant with their own reading and educational experience. Right. So to, to look at that opening paragraph, he's talking about a, he calls him a prominent English literary critic. So English is the key word there. And that critic has then asked for the best novel in English. Yeah. And he, of course, says Middlemarch, believing that the, the question is about novels from England. But then he says, but if you're asking about novels in English, then of course, Moby Dick, which I think in a way is kind of refreshing. Did you ever find out who that critic is? I know I, I don't can't say that I did a deep dive into that, although it's it's easy to imagine many, many people taking that position. Um, in fact, the, a common uh, joke on literary Twitter is the Middlemark, Middlemarch versus Moby Dick debate. Um, and it's done not um, as a, a kind of showdown between national literary traditions, but more among 19th century scholars who are fanatics and partisans of, of both books. Uh, there are some people who teach classes that consist only of reading those two books. Um, oh, really? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that that's a common thing to do, but it's a pretty fantastic thing to do. Um, so the, the Middlemarch versus Moby Dick debate continues. Now, uh, all the introductions that I read, they, they all have a, a section of what you might call literary history, where they talk about how the novel came out to a very mixed reviews. Some people, of course, love the language. Other people thought it was, a, I think you used the phrase, mess of a book. Um, and then, of course, uh, the novel just kind of dies. Melville dies, nothing happens. And then in the 20s, there's a resurgence. And everyone talks about how it then rises to become the most important American novel. Uh, aside from going over that literary history, which you, which you do, uh, what else did you want to do in your introduction that you thought your audience, those, that is to say, the people you're teaching, um, 
would want to know about? My interests were primarily in thinking about the novel's attention to, on the one hand, some topics that have had real importance to readers and humans today, which have to do with environmental concerns and the depletion of natural resources, which is one of the major themes of the novel, um, with current conversations in everything from queer studies to disability studies. Again, these are elements of the novel that have always been present in it. Some readers in other generations have noted those presences in sometimes in the same terms, sometimes in different terms. And so I wanted to kind of excavate and bring into clearer focus for a lot of readers how those various moments of social and environmental and economic justice as we understand them today are appearing in the novel. It's a, it's a novel that's really available to all kinds of different readings. So that was one part of what I wanted to do with my reading. But I also don't have any interest in literary greatness per se. I have spent my career reading uh, narratives written by working people and in spending a lot of time thinking about print culture, what readers read, how they encountered books, what they did with them. And the classic canonical models of literary greatness don't always and generally don't line up with those understandings of um, how readers encountered books. So part of what I wanted to talk about in the novel was its messiness, the fact that it's always narrativizing its own inability to stay coherent and celebrating that um, also seemed to me to be part of a kind of history of reading that doesn't take greatness or transcendence as an aim, but acknowledges the value of a certain kind of messiness or dissolution, because I, I think, again, that that's at the heart of the novel's own interests. Why do you think, and this is not a fair question, but I am also a practicing lawyer, so I don't ask fair questions. Why do you think people love this book so much? Let me give you my answer, which is the characters just jump off the page and are absolutely compelling, the major characters in this novel. You know, that, that's a, you. <laughs> it, it's a, it's a great, it's a great answer. Uh, for me, the, it, the deep weirdness of the novel and the deep weirdness of the language and the analogies and the sounds and the figurations has always been um, key to why I have loved it. Um, I think the students that I teach, um, if they come to love it, which I hope most of them do, I think most of them do, um, find it unexpectedly funny, which again is not necessarily part of the novel's reputation, although people have done a lot of work to try to point out the humor. Um, it's also just unlike anything that they might have encountered before in the form of a novel. It's strange in, as a novel, the expectations of what a novel will produce which again, readers may or may not have a kind of clear sense for themselves of what a novel should look like um, in terms of a narrative through line, a coherence, a kind of unity of space and time. Um, so that weirdness and that um, incommensurate experience with reading it and the fact that you can find something new in it every time you read it, as I continue to do, I notice something strange and weird in it anew, I think is, is partly why it is um, so uh, held up as a, a, as a novel to read or something one should read or should have read. From the 
time he opens his mouth and says, call me Ishmael, to the very end, Ishmael's on a, he's searching, he's a searcher. Mm -hmm. And Ahab, we know, is on a quest. How many readers do you think, in your experience, how many readers identify with one or both of these characters and what they're obsessed about, the searching or the questing? That's a, you know, it, that's an, it's an interesting question over the course of um, the, the now several decades that I've been teaching the novel. Um, the student interest in characters who are relatable is something that has been a, has risen in recent years. It's something that my colleagues and I talk about a lot about how we talk with students who are looking to relate to characters in novels. Um, I don't, it, when, when one teaches um, 19th century American literature in particular, um, sometimes the kind of relatability question is a difficult one since um, some of the earlier texts are not seeking to establish that kind of relationship, I think, with their readers. Um, as, as such, I would expect my student readers to identify with Ishmael, but they tend not to, in part because Ishmael, we know very little about him. Um, he, it's not his real name. We don't, we know very little about his origins. He drops in and out of the narrative, even though he's the first person narrator. Um, and that is might be appealing as something to think through, but as um, an as a identification is difficult for students, especially since he withholds such central information about himself and his his own narrative arc <laughs> in that in the course of the telling of the story. So Ahab is an older character, which puts him at a disadvantage with younger readers, and he's got this uh, quest. He, he's engaged in a titanic battle with the universe. I mean, that's the only kind you can have, I guess, with the universe. <laughs> Do people have a hard time understanding why he is struggling so mightily to come to some sort of answer for himself as to why the universe is doing what it's doing? Well, the, the, in the way that I teach the novel, it's I don't think Ahab is as concerned with identifying why the universe is doing what it's doing as resisting why the universe is doing what it's doing. Ahab doesn't have a lot of curiosity about the source of that opposition in the universe. He just wants to enact some kind of response to it. And so that part, I think, um, in thinking through, especially in recent years, in talking about um, leadership that is authoritarian or tyrannical or um, unidirectional, is something that students, again, in, in recent years have been particularly attuned to. And so Ahab's lack of intellectual curiosity about what he's seeking to attack uh, is something I think is registering for my, for at least in my classroom situations, is registering um, in a new way, although that's not a new reading of the novel. Famously, um, one of the greatest books ever written about Moby Dick is C.L.R. James's Mariners, Renegades, and Castaways. Um, where he talks about Ahab as a fascistic, dictatorial autocrat um, in ways that made sense in the 1950s in, the, in, a, in a U.S. Um, international context and all too tra tragically continue to be relevant um, for students today. Well, you raise a very good point about the political aspect of it. And in such a, a big book, I guess you can find whatever you want to find in it. Uh, but there have been quite a few studies looking at the uh, 
um, political implications of the uh, of, of the novel. But my question is, it's all about men, aside from references to Ahab's wife and a few other things. It's, it's all about men. So how does that square with the idea that it's supposed to be on some level um, a reflection of the democracy or the struggles within the democracy? Yeah, it, it's a it's the a tough question um, and and one that I've I've thought through a lot. Um, it's I don't I couldn't continue to teach 19th century literature if I expected it to be representative um, across the board because it's not um, and usually is much more limited in doing so. Um, one thing that I think the Moby Dick does particularly well is recognize and call attention to its limitations in that regard. Um, and one of the, the great arguments um, that has been made about Melville's democratic impulse within Moby Dick is, is been made by the scholar Don Pease, who talks about the moment in um, one of the Knights and Squires chapters where, where the source of the title Mariners, Renegades, and Castaways comes from in the CLR James book, which is when Melville says that if he were to ascribe to the meanest mariners, renegades, and castaways, the lowest of the low, those who are considered disposable, um, non-elites, non-white men of property, that if he were to ascribe to them high qualities, to use the language of the novel, um, then he says that the great democratic God should bear him out in his doing so. And it sounds to a first reading that Melville is saying, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ascribe to the meanest mariners, renegades, and castaways, high qualities, and the great democratic God is going to bear me out in it. But what Don Pease's great reading has pointed out is that sentence starts with an if-then clause, that if then I were to do this thing, bear me out in it. And his argument has been that Melville imagines a possibility in which he does that in this novel, but actually doesn't fulfill it. And so I think that that's a really useful caution, as well as an amazing way to point out all the times where the novel suggests that it could do something, but has various limitations built in. And those limitations are expressive ones, they're political ones, they're, they're uh, structural ones. But um, I think one of the, the ways that Moby Dick remains so elastic is because it acknowledges that space for filling in possibilities that are not fully realized within the novel. You used, uh, I, I think, an important word just a moment ago, fulfill, is the word that I, I noticed. And raises for me the question of how satisfying do you think Moby Dick is as a novel? Because one of the things about great novels is that they do have a level of satisfaction. You put it down and you're happy in a way. You're sometimes sad that it's ended, but you've, you've come to terms with something. There's a conclusion aspect of it. How do you think Moby Dick uh, fits into that type of assessment? I, I think that's one of the ways in which it's, it's atypicality as a novel is difficult for some people and satisfying for others. I, I love its messiness. When I put it down, every time I read it, I feel totally annihilated by it um, in all the best ways. Um, I don't feel satisfied. Um, I feel kind of emptied out, um, again, in ways that I find intellectually productive. I find them emotionally difficult, but necessary. Um, 
it, it's not a good feeling other than the delight that I take in the language. Um, and so again, it's, it's difficulty is in part because some a reader has to be uncomfortable in it being challenged to follow along in a story that doesn't have a narrative thread in the same way that um, a conventional novel might. Uh, and so again, it's being comfortable with discomfort, sitting with that, that sense of itchiness is not every reader's choice and that's fine and totally understandable, but it's what the Moby Dick asks of readers. Um, well, one reason I bring it up is that uh, I've seen actually one or two references on uh, popular television about the ending of Moby Dick where people get it wrong. In fact, I watched this one sitcom where one of the characters says, no, that's not the way it ends. Why do you think people don't remember how it actually ends? They think the whale dies. Oh, really? That's interesting. Yes. Huh. Um, yeah, I don't encounter that so often. Um, it, but the, it, it, there makes a certain amount of sense. Um, although I will say that I recently um, saw the Broadway musical Hades Town, which is based on the um, uh, the Orpheus and Eurydice myth, and in the moment in the musical when Orpheus turns around to see Eurydice, therefore condemning them both to separation, people in the audience gasped in absolute non-knowing. <laughs> Um, horror at the moment as if they, you know, they didn't know the myth and that's again, perfectly fine. Um, but there's a, I think there's a point and, and maybe it's just from being a professional literary person for so long. I forget sometimes that these stories are not um, stamped on everyone's brain in quite the same way. So um, that's not really an answer to your question directly, but um, Revenge stories as genres don't end well for the person seeking revenge. So um, I I'm, I would not expect necessarily people to expect that Ahab would get his revenge because those that's not how those stories tend to end. They always tend with the revenger uh, dying or screwing things up in some way. It's it's not a common uh, it's not a common happy ending story. You ever have students ask the question of well what happens to Ishmael next? After he survives, I alone survived to tell the tale. He tells us. Yeah, uh, well, he, he writes he writes a narrative of his experience, like many sailors before him. Um, this is a posthumous narrative. Ishmael's not writing this as he goes. He's writing it years later. He's writing it after an extensive experience that is not narrated in this book, except that it comes in by piecemeal. Um, one of my my favorite moments indicating the passage of a lot of time is that. At the beginning of the novel, Ishmael is scared by Queequeg's tattoos. Queequeg has tattoos on his entire body, and Ishmael finds that frightening and distasteful, and he doesn't like it. And we learn only very late in the novel that Ishmael has subsequently tattooed his entire body, um, that he has only a little bit of space left on his arm for a poem that he's composing. And that is really shocking information because it's not something that Ishmael includes as part of the early part of the narrative. It's something that he does in subsequent years and that tells us a lot about Ishmael because being tattooed as a white man in the 19th century was a marker of outcastness. So it's a confirmation of Ishmael's own wandering outsider status. But that's not a status that he has at the beginning of the novel. Um, so the sense of how that time works, and we see that also in the way that um, 
Ishmael tells the story of Moby Dick through the Town Ho chapter of the novel, where he's retelling what he knows about Moby Dick in a different context. Um, the those aspects of uh, what Ishmael does next are hinted at throughout the novel, but are not as explicit as they could be. All right, let me ask the question that people are always uh, thinking about when it comes to Ahab. What does he figure out or not figure out about the universe? I always turn to the the famous passage in the uh, the quarter deck chapter when he um, is first telling the sailors that they were, are not going to be hunting whales in a conventional sense, that they are going to be looking for Moby Dick. Um, and Ahab realizes that he can get the crew to go along if he gets them drunk and if he um, entices them with a doubloon for whoever first sights the white whale. But he realizes that he's losing Starbuck, his you know Christian upright first mate. And so he gives a kind of private speech to Starbuck in which he talks about the world as being a pasteboard mask and that the power and agency in the world presents itself to him as if behind a mask, like a plaster of Paris mask, not, not an iron mask, not a kind of shield, but something that is hiding what's behind it, but is penetrable. Um, and so what Ahab says in this speech is that he hates knowing that inscrutable thing behind the mask that has power in the world. And that power might be God, it might be some other force operating in the world. He doesn't know and he doesn't really care. At one point he says, be the white whale agent or be the white whale principal, I will wreak that hate upon it. Um, he hates not knowing what that power is. And the whale could be the agent of that power, it could be sent by a god or some other godlike force or it could be the principle, it could be, the whale could be that power itself. And Ahab says that he doesn't care. He just wants to strike through the mask and end that kind of power over him. He doesn't like knowing that he is subjected to some other external power. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that he learns much about what he's seeking other than he doesn't want anyone or anything to be above him. He sees himself as superior and supreme and wants to destroy any perceived power that is governing him. So I, I, I think he lacks intellectual curiosity even as he's on this pursuit. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So I, I've read some commentary that talks about what Ahab can't figure out is that the universe is indifferent. Yeah. It's almost too much to, too much to take on. Mm -hmm. It's indifferent. So it's a fight without an enemy in a way. Um, Indeed. So is this a book, we've, we've been talking about a different responses that readers have. Uh, is this a book for, in which or for which all of the great critics I, mean, I was just reading uh, uh, about Elizabeth Hardwick. Um, all the great critics take their crack at Moby Dick. <laughs> you think why they all take a crack at Hamlet? It, it certainly seems that way. Um, the 
I don't think it's a requirement for uh, for critics, but um, it it the challenge is there. And again, as I, I said, probably more than once already in this conversation, it really rewards repeated uh, attempts to assimilate or describe or encounter its weirdnesses. Um, it, it's it's it remains alive in a way that. Um, you know, all books do to some extent, but few do in quite as capacious a way as Moby Dick does. You've had this great uh, adventure opportunity to come to terms with the book. That's what, I mean, your, your job is writing, job writing the introduction in a way compelled you to do it. But that's a great thing to be able to do, to, to spend a fair amount of time, a fair amount of thought, trying to understand how you feel about a particular book. So when you decided you were going to take this on, when you started teaching it or when you decided to write the introduction, whatever it was, where did you think you needed to go to get your bearing, so to speak? Yeah, so writing the introduction was the hardest and easiest writing I've ever done. And I feel like I've been writing it in my mind for 25 years now. I, I first read the novel in high school. Um, and continue to again read it more than once a year for decades since and so the difficulty was condensing all that i think and want to say about moby dick into 10,000 words which is a pretty short amount of time um but also to find a hook and a through line that allowed me to talk about the the ways that the novel um makes itself again available to different readers and so i knew that i wanted to talk about above all else is that moby dick is a novel about how to read and how to come to know things how to come to information um, how to come to knowledge um, that it's constantly doing a kind of meta reflection on its own abilities to assemble a whole bunch of information and make sense of it something the novel only does occasionally make sense of it, but it's throwing all that information at you. And the challenge is, how do you come to know anything in the world? So I knew that that was what I wished to convey on some level. And there was a point in the writing of the introduction or in my thinking about the introduction that I realized that my opening hook was going to be a, a question that I always ask on the first day of teaching the novel, and that is, what is the first line? And everybody responds in a chorus, call me Ishmael. And then I provide the incredibly annoying and pedantic response that that is not the first line of the novel. It's the first line of chapter one, but the novel begins with extracts and it begins with an etymology, all of which provide different definitions and contexts and quotations and iterations of what a whale is. Um, and I find it interesting as someone who's interested in the history of readers and the history of texts of what readers think is part of the book or not. Um, most students don't read introductory material, um, whether it's by an author or by an editor. Um, I'm interested in why that is, what they think the book is. And so in asking the kind of question of, why the call me Ishmael moment is so compelling as a line. And it's a fantastic line. It's this invitation to intimacy to somebody who's not telling you who he really is from the start. And that's a, a tension that doesn't go away. Um, and I, so I understand why people are so entranced by that opening line, 
but then I knew I wanted to pose the question of what is uh, of what happens to our reading of the novel if we begin not with that incredibly evocative, call me Ishmael, intimate and distancing moment, but with a series of definitions and a series of quotations. Um, those aren't fun to read. Most people don't read them all the way through. They don't know what to make of them. Um, that's not what a novel does usually. And so that I, once I realized that, that that was how I wanted to enter into um, my introductions discussion of how it is we come to knowledge about things, whether knowledge is just a kind of collection of facts or what kind of narrative thread helps to connect them. Now, this is not a, this is another unfair question. <laughs> how would your introduction have been different? If rather than you, you had to uh, kind of check off a number of subjects that you had to explore the literary history that I mentioned earlier is one of them um, reception in, at, at the time and today and all those things. What would have happened if you wrote, what well, we won't even call it an introduction. What we'll call it is uh, advice to readers. Mm -hmm. and this advice to readers is based on your having read it every year for 25 years, uh, figuring out exactly what you said, um, and how you've changed in your reading of the book, how you probably changed, and just what it is you've, you've learned along the way when it comes to better understanding the book. How would you have described this advice to the reader, you would have said what? Uh, don't pay too much attention here. Really pay attention to this part over here. What would you have said? Well, I would have said, don't skip the whaling chapters because they're the best part ah, of the book. Okay. <laughs> that, and that's too often the advice that readers get. Um, so, I, you know, my if I if I've been charged with saying how to read the book, I would say pay special attention to the whaling chapters. Um, the now, by, by which you mean what? When you say whaling chapters, you mean. The opening descriptions of the first lowering that kind of thing. The the more technical questions, uh, the more technical chapters that deal with everything from um, how the blubber is tried out, um, how the log and line function, um, what it means to stand on a masthead, um, what the how the tri works are organized, um, how the first lowering goes. Although that's a bit more of an action scene than others. Um, Ishmael's long digressions through the the long middle of the book, um, which take up more you know more than half the the volume, which for a reader interested in straightforward narrative seem like uh, pedantic digressions. Uh, I think they're the most interesting parts of the book, um, and I don't think they should be skipped. And so that would be my reader's advice. Um, but that is advice that often is runs counter to. Um, other reader guides of the novel, but I, I don't think you have Moby Dick as Moby Dick without those chapters. All right. Um, you find that students will, I don't want to say cheap because that's not the right word, but they'll get an audio version of the novel and listen to it. Uh, I have one that's done by William Hootkins, a uh, fairly well-known actor. He does all the voices uh -huh. and it's a spectacular CD. I forgot how many there were 15 or 16 CDs in it. Uh, it's spectacular and the humor that you were talking about earlier really comes through. Mm -hmm. um, do you find that people go go at the novel that way um, rather than reading it, they'll listen to it? Uh, yeah, many do. Um, I, they don't necessarily report that to me, but um, I don't think, you know, audiobooks are still reading. Um, I don't think of that as, you know, cheating in any kind of way whatsoever. Um, it's just a different encounter with the text and 
you know, the history of literature is also an oral culture. So um, I endorse hugely um, any way that students want to read the book, and that includes audio readings. Uh, there are tons of versions of it out there. Um, I myself am someone who who needs to see the words on the page to really assimilate them. There, there's some some genres that I enjoy an audiobook in, but um, so it's not my own preferred method, but there are some works that I have read via audio that um, have really rewarded that. And I'm, I'm sure for many readers, Moby Dick does as well. I've heard that from friends and colleagues who have encountered it that way, for sure. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I welcome it. Uh, what comes through on the page more than in the audio version is what I think either you mentioned it or Tony Tanner's mentions it, or maybe it was Delanco, the, the, the compressed language that Melville uses. And he's so spectacular a writer that at times when you read the book, you sit and wonder, how would did anyone at the age of 31 do this? What do you say when people, when students ask you that? It, it's, did he have an encyclopedic mind? Was what, what kind of gifts as a writer did he have? He, he, he's a far better writer than, say, Hawthorne. Far better. It, what do you think he had that Hawthorne didn't, or any one of his generation, or his century for that matter, didn't have? You know, I, 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 I'm reluctant personally to rank things on the level of like a better writer. He's a very different writer than Hawthorne. Um, he uses language in very different ways. Um, he also he was a professional sailor for a number of years and. While that specialized vocabulary obviously shows up in the novel, not all sailor writing sounds like Melville by any stretch of the imagination. Um, the uh, the the figurations, the images, the the weirdness of I, I say weird over and over again because, and I mean that in the kind of uncanny way, and in the spectral, and in the um, in a almost kind of like Shakespearean witch's way of that weirdness. Um, that he's got an oracular voice that is is different um, than many of his contemporaries, and as weird as a lot of nineteenth century American literature is, and it's like deeply strange. There's a lot of really bananas books out there that um, feature all kinds of um, elements that I think a lot of contemporary readers would be surprised by. Um, there's there's nothing that compares to Melville's language um, and and figures of imagination. And I, I don't know where that stuff comes from. I, it's, it's, I'm interested in his biography to a certain extent, but then that falls away. Like I, I as a scholar, I'm, I'm not someone who wants to kind of trace through a writer's upbringing to figure out like what led them to that point, that that's a, an active way that many scholars work. It's just not my method or particular interest. Um, so I, I can't tell you where that comes from, but it um, it's it's he's drawn from a range of illusions that um, are opportunistic at times and ludicrous and silly at other times. Like there's a lot of very silly references in his works um, and a lot of humor and a lot of just like deep sadness and sense of like pathos and loneliness. Um, well, that, that sadness, I want to ask about that because I imagine the students are also intrigued, if not just uh, kind of flabbergasted by his life, how after Moby Dick, he really didn't do much um, for a long, long time. Yes and no. Um, I mean, the 
his reputational arc is, is a strange one. Um, he, some of the best and, and most well-known of his writing came after Moby Dick and his short fictions. Um, Benito Sereno is the, the astonishing um, longer short fiction um, that postdates Moby Dick by several years. I'm a huge fan of his incest novel, Pierre, that comes out within a year of Moby Dick. Um, I love Pierre, I love teaching it. It's totally bananas. Um, his other stories like Bartleby or The Encantadas and Billy Budd and The Confidence Man, which I also think is fantastic. Um, his production falls off. He doesn't maintain the pace of production that he had done in his 20s, but he's writing poetry for decades afterward. It just is not finding readership in the way that his early works did. Um, and so the the sadness and the pain in his life and the pain that he caused to his family. He was a really you know shitty husband and father um, and abusive. Um, I see a lot of the kind of sadness and pathos in the writing gets highlighted um, not only in the kind of search for connection and meaning throughout these books and through a real deep cynicism about how power in the world works, um, but what my students, I think, most respond to are his letters to Nathaniel Hawthorne, which are the kind of most gorgeous and slightly, <laughs> slightly creepy in their intensity um, love letters. That um, and so those are 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 texts that we spend a lot of time on in class. Um, those letters, um, because uh, there's there's very little like them in in literary history, especially since we don't have the other half of that correspondence. Uh, letters uh, are set out as an appendix in your volume and also in Tony Tanner's from 30 years earlier. Um, I don't have the Norton critical one with me, so I don't know how many of the letters have in there, but yes, they're certainly important to understanding uh, Melville. Um, I'm not going to put you in the position of being a marketing director for Oxford, but <laughs> who should be reading this book? Who should they be trying to sell it to? I mentioned in the beginning of our, I think it was before we started recording, that when I was in school 50 years ago, I'm almost 70 now, um, we did not read it in high school. Uh, we read Middle March, but not Moby Dick. Um, should they be reading in high school now, do you think? I think everybody should be reading Moby Dick all the time. Um, and I read it in high school, but again, that's going back um, also many decades. Um, have I was it a public school that you went to? Uh, yes, I went to a public school. I went to Livingston High School in uh, Livingston, New Jersey. Um, and I had a, a marvelous uh, professor, Dr. Grisky, um, professor. She was a high school teacher um, with a PhD who taught us the book. Um, and I don't think that that's as common nowadays um, since the way testing requirements have changed, especially in public school, an expectation of what people read. A lot of undergrads come to college now without having read a lot of long form fiction. It's not uh, something that their high school curricula have space for at this time. So that is uh, beyond my ability to correct, but um, I do think Reading Moby Dick as a teenager is a tremendous thing to be able to do. It's a it's a gift, um, although obviously difficult. Um, so I do think that that should be happening everywhere all the time, um, which is not really a helpful uh, suggestion. But I, the one of the interesting um, ways that the Moby Dick 
discussion of this new edition has happened for me in the last uh, year is that I uh, had the, the privilege of appearing on um, the game show Jeopardy in December wow. as part of uh, Jeopardy's first professor's tournament. Um, and on Jeopardy. Oh, tell me about that. Oh, yeah. What was that like? It was, uh, it was amazing. It was wild. Um, really just tremendous uh, fellow professors from a range of institutions who, you know, we all bonded and had a terrific time. Um, and we were all able to talk a little bit about our academic work as part of the tournament anecdotes, because uh, if you've watched Jeopardy, you know, there's a brief moment at the beginning where each contestant tells a story. And so in one of my appearances, I got to talk about this Moby Dick edition. Um, and how I like to proselytize Moby Dick, that I think it's a surprise, it's a, it, the book is surprising. And I talked about how funny and queer it was. Oh, they didn't want me to say the word queer on Jeopardy. Um, really? <laughs> they, they were, um, they didn't tell me that I couldn't say it, but they said, maybe think of another word. Um, so I, I talked about it in the anecdote and what I absolutely did not expect was um, in the aftermath of appearing on Jeopardy, you get a lot of emails from strangers, um, I discovered. And so many of them were about people writing to say that they were going to read Moby Dick for the first time, or they had read it before, but they were going to try it again, or that they had always thought that they should read it, and now was the time. That it, it, it was, I didn't expect the Moby Dick interest to be as strong as it was in the sense that it motivated strangers to write to me about it. Um, only one person was hostile to my take on Moby Dick, but it was incredibly surprising how many people responded by saying, I never thought of Moby Dick as funny. Now I'm going to check it out. And in some cases, people wrote to me and said, I picked up Moby Dick because I watched you on Jeopardy. And you're right. It's really funny. I mean, there are moments that this happened and I would never have expected that as in response to the Jeopardy appearance. So what you're saying is that you passed up the opportunity on national television to tell the audience that Moby Dick has a whole number of dick jokes in it. Uh, I, <laughs> I mentioned that, I, I mentioned that in your introduction, which may be howl. <laughs> it's, well, it's true that Dick meant the same yes. thing. It's the whole book is a dick joke. <laughs> the, I mean, on, on every level, spermaceti whales are named spermaceti whales because their oil looked like sperm. Like that's where the name of the whale comes from. And Moby Dick's name is a joke. It's a white whale. And that's the the entirety of, I mean, this is a, a novel that may be incredibly highfalutin in its language, but it also has jokes about farting and dicks throughout the whole throughout the whole book. Um and and so that's that's part of what again the uh, the modernist classic james joyce's ulysses is entirely filled with like fart and shit and dick jokes and like that's something that is consistent with uh the so-called notions of literary greatness and i i think it's time more people understood that about moby dick that they're not reading too much into it dick meant the same thing in 1851. well you know the the great story about james joyce's out and about it runs into a big fan the big fan says oh can i kiss the hand i wrote he says no because it's done lots of other things. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So how many episodes did you appear on in Jeopardy? I was on two because it, it was a tournament. Um, I came in second in both games, and normally, if you lose on Jeopardy, you're done. But um, in tournament play, the nine, uh, the top nine of fifteen contestants advance. So 
I came in second in my first game and second in my second game. And I think uh, um, my point, my my dollar total, I think put me overall in fourth fourth or fifth place overall. But um, I was soundly beaten in both games by worthy worthier opponents. Um, but it was an amazing experience. Um, I might have to look that up on YouTube. Yeah. Uh, we're heading towards the end. I just wanted to mention now what I mentioned before we started taping, which was my little favorite mm. bit of the book. And it's in the first lowering, which I think is chapter 48. And it's, this, it's the paragraph that begins, uh, all the boats tour on. And there's a wonderful description of all that's going on inside the boats. And then there's a, uh, a sentence fragment that says, all this was thrilling. Now, I bring this up because I was reading the uh, introduction to the uh, 1946 edition published by Houghton Mifflin in the Riverside class. Riverside editions, I think they call them, which were very popular in high schools for a long time. That's the edition of Middlemarch that I read, for instance. And uh, I was telling someone the other day, and I hadn't thought about it, and I said, oh, this introduction by Kazin was thrilling. Because his introduction is all about the intellectual vibrancy of the uh, of, of the novel. And it was thrilling. And all of a sudden, I had this, my God, a critic wrote something that was thrilling. Now, that's another way of saying to you that yours is a terrific introduction. If people wanted to read Moby Dick after hearing you talk about it on television, they would certainly <laughs> want to read it if they read your introduction. Because you, and I said, I've covered the waterfront here, to use a good phrase, of all the introductions to the major editions, and yours is the best. It really is. And I congratulate you on that. I, that means the world to me. I'm deeply honored by that. And I, you know, academics, as you've talked to lots of them, I'm sure. And as you may know, a lot of academics, since we, we tend to work alone, if we're working in the humanities or working in literary studies, is, there's not a lot of collaborative work. And when you're working alone, it can lead to a lot of doubt and insecurity. And the something about writing this introduction was clarifying to me in that I feel at peace with it and I feel proud of it. And I feel like I said what I wanted to say. And to have that strike you as uh, and other readers as um, as also true as also being the effort that I wanted it to be is is really wonderful. And I thank you for that. Well, if I were asked about Moby Dick, the thing I would say first and foremost is that he, Melville, connects with his readers in this novel. And the same way you connected to your readers in your introduction, which I, I think is only fitting given it's such a great book. Okay, well, I'm really delighted I had a chance to talk to you. And I think uh, we've had a good uh, discussion about Moby Dick. I hope it leads to people going out. I have, I think, four or five editions. And even if people already have Moby Dick, they should get yours. It's a very handsome book, too. That's something Oxford produces a nice book. And I say that not just because they publish two of my books, but they do publish very handsome books. And it's a very nice paperback edition. And the other thing is, it's surprisingly inexpensive. I got mine from Amazon, I think, mm -hmm. and it was $11. So that's a tremendous deal, a whale of a deal. Of course, I had to say that. Of course. Okay. Well, again, uh, uh, Hester, thank you very much for your time. 